you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, chapter number 9. Chapter number 9 this morning from the precious Word of God. And uh, certainly this morning's message is, is going to be one in which I pray the Lord will draw our attention and focus to the need of missions. Uh, not only here in Warrington and Northern Virginia, but all around the world. On Wednesday, we'll be joined from our missionary guests from uh, Guatemala, uh, from Uruguay, and then also missionaries from the Philippines. And so, looking forward to our time with them. And so, this morning, if you would, look with me in Matthew chapter number 9. In a very familiar passage of Scripture, notice what the Bible says. In verse number 35 and following, the Bible says, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd." Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers in to his harvest. Let us pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to be gathered here in your house. And Lord, I pray that you'll fill me with holy boldness as I proclaim your truth today, God. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. God, I pray that you would be with the, the one who is still yet to call upon the name of the Lord, that today might be their day of salvation. And God, I pray for the one that may have strayed, the one who is struggling to take a step of faith, to live a life of faith, God, that they might be reminded today that even in our sickness, even in our weaknesses, God, you are strong. God, help us to be more like Jesus when we leave this place than when we walked in. God, we give you the praise for it all in his precious name and for his sake. Amen. This morning, I want to begin reminding all of us that last words are important. Last words are pretty important. Think about in your own mind that if you were about to pass from this life and to the next, what would your advice be to your loved ones? What would you say to your children? What would you say to your grandchildren? If you had the opportunity and you knew that you only had a few moments to be here on this earth, what would you say to your boss? What would you say to the person in the marketplace that maybe you have struggled with the thought of saying down through the years? I can tell you last words are important. I think about uh, Jesus' disciples. After Jesus died on the cross, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. We know according to scripture, he arose three days later. And, and he spent about 40 days after that teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God. And in Acts chapter 1, it's amazing to me that after spending those 40 days with Jesus, after hearing instruction from the Lord, they ask a question in verse number 6 of Acts chapter 1, notice what they ask. They say, when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? You see, his disciples, like many churches, now, not even back then, but even today, many churches, they, they were confused. 
They, they didn't understand what he was talking about when he, when he was telling them that he was going to go to his father's house. All the teaching that he had leading up to his death and then all the teaching after his resurrection, they still didn't have a clue. They were, they were confused. They were uncertain as to what their mission biblically should be. But folks, I can tell you from the authority of God's word, not based on anything that I say, but based on what God's word says, our mission has never changed. <laughs> our mission has never changed. People need the Lord. I don't need to take you to uh, Guatemala. I don't need to take you to Uruguay. I don't need to take you to the Philippines, hopefully for you to understand that people need the Lord. Are there anyone, is there anyone in this room that would really be honest right now and say you have a family member that still needs Jesus? Everybody, if you're not recognizing that your family needs Jesus, that means that everybody in your family, all the way up and down, cousins, in-laws, outlaws, and in between, they all know Jesus, Right? People need the Lord. I don't have to look out even inside our own family circles. Let alone, what about our church family circle? Oh, listen, our Lord said this. Notice in verse number 8, he said, hey, the mission has never changed. He says in verse 8, but ye shall, be, ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. He said, here's your mission. You're going to be witnesses unto me. And he says, you're going to do it both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost part of the world. He said, listen, I've got a job for you to do. And so here's what it is. You're going to go out into all the world. You're going to preach the gospel to every creature. You're going to go into all the world and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so he had given them instructions about what their mission was to do. And as Christ followers, you and I have a job to do. And the reality is, one, one pastor and teacher put it, the job is not done. The job is not done because if the job were done, you and I would not be here this morning. We still have a mission. We still have a job. However, I put down in my notes that you or I will never be very passionate about being witnesses and sharing the gospel locally or sending the gospel into every nation until Jesus Christ becomes the priority that he needs to be in our lives. The Apostle Paul knew this. I think about the Apostle Paul, the murderer to missionary. He said, he said in Romans chapter 1 and verse number 16, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And the reason he wasn't ashamed is because he said, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Oh, you see, Paul understood his role and responsibility. He was a recipient of God's grace. And if you're here, you're listening, and you have trusted Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, if you have received him into your heart as Lord and Savior, you, my friend, are a recipient of God's grace. I wonder sometimes if we're even thankful for that. We're recipients of his grace. But because we're recipients of his grace, the Bible says that we have now been given a job. We're to be, we're to be uh, in the ministry of reconciliation. We're to be carrying that grace, that love, and that truth of the gospel to other people that we come into contact with. Oh, listen, the Apostle Paul knew this. Years ago, I used to sing a song, and some of you, some of you and, and the younger crowd will be like, I've never heard of this song. But some of you uh, may be a little bit more senior 
will remember this song. It was called, My House is Full. You remember the song, it says, My house is full, but my field is empty. Who will go and work for me today? And the lyric goes on and it says, It seems all my children want to stay around my table, but no one wants to go and work for me. Oh, my house is full, but the fields are empty. That's what Jesus was saying. He says, he says here, he says, the harvest is truly plenteous, but the laborers are few. Oh, absolutely. It's harvest time. But folks, I can tell you uh, that if we ever hope to take the hope of the gospel into the regions beyond, we're going to have to understand our role and responsibility in getting that done. Oh, we have heard the joyful sound that Jesus saves, Jesus saves, but the question is, does our heart break for those who have never heard that Jesus saves? Because I can tell you, you can go up here, Big A, we can go up into D.C., and there's people who have never heard the sound that Jesus saves, Jesus saves. I can go, I can go down here to Bealton, and I bet you I can find somebody out in the sticks, out in Bealton, that's never heard Jesus saves. And while that's amusing, that's also sad. Because we live in the land of plenty. Quite honestly, I understand that this wasn't seen in Scripture as the land that floweth with milk and honey, but certainly is it not? Have we not been blessed? Oh, man. It was theologian Carl F.H. Henry who said these words. He said, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. I'm so thankful it reached me in time. Oh yes, the great commission of our Lord is still binding on us today. And so look back in Matthew chapter 9, but here's what you need to see because our passage, look at verse number 35, because what we typically do is we typically read these three verses in isolation without ever taking a look at the context in which Matthew, through the Holy Spirit of God, intended for us to see them. And so look at verse 35 of our text. The Bible says in Matthew 9, 35, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But what we need to do is flip back in your scripture. Take your Bible and flip back to Matthew chapter 4. Because here's the thing. I think God wants us to see this in context. And maybe this is the first time you've ever done this, this little exercise by going back to Matthew chapter 4. But look with me in verse 23 and following of Matthew chapter 4. And you're going to see something very, very interesting. Notice what the Bible says. It says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. Does that sound familiar? Sounds just like what I just read over in verse number 35 of chapter 9. Keep reading. Verse 24, and his fame went throughout all Syria and they brought unto him sick people that were taken with divers diseases and torments and those which were possessed with devils and those which were a lunatic and those that had the palsy and he healed them. And notice verse 25, and there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan. See, if you go back to our passage in verse number 9, go back there to verse number nine, chapter 9 rather, Matthew is actually bracketing something here for us at this point 
He's trying to show us from Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, all the way to Matthew 9, 35. It's a collection of stuff that's been going on. It's a long period of time that's been taking place. It starts back here in Matthew chapter 4, and it moves through Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8. And then we get to number 9, and it's when we get to number 9 that Jesus looks out on all the multitudes. And we get the description of what he sees. See, in other words, it's the culmination of what's been happening for quite a while. And so from Matthew's gospel alone, if you've studied Matthew's gospel, you know that Jesus Christ, it, it, we learn some things about Jesus in Matthew's gospel. We learn that he's the son of David. We learn that he's the promised son of Abraham. We learn that he's the Messiah. And also in Matthew's gospel, we also learn that he's the very son of God. And so there's enough evidence in Matthew's gospel alone for the deity of Jesus Christ. And so when we get to Matthew chapter 9, God of very God, think of it this way, is looking out upon his children in his own land. And this is what he sees. See, we have to get it into context. I think about Matthew chapter 3 and verse number 17. After Jesus was baptized, even God the Father was pleased. It says there in, in verse 17, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You want, you want to know why the Father was well pleased? He was well pleased because the Son had followed through with his mission and ministry that the Father had given him. He was well pleased. He was looking at his Son doing exactly what he sent him to do. Remember, God so loved the world that he gave his own. He sent and gave Jesus on a mission. And Jesus came and died. And so he's satisfied. He's excited that his son is doing exactly what he was called to do. And so, folks, if we're ever going to complete the mission and the ministry that you and I have been given as believers, recipients of God's grace, if we're ever, ever going to take the gospel of hope into the regions beyond, or even locally, so to speak, we must learn to do a few things. And so if you're a note taker, I did a missions display on this years ago. If we're going to do this, we must learn to see what Jesus sees. Do we see what Jesus sees? Because look at verse number 35 again. Verse 35 tells us that Jesus had been traveling all throughout Galilee and Judea. He's been in the cities. He's been in the smaller villages. And he's been teaching. He's been preaching. And he's been healing. And truly, Jesus understood what the people needed. And so he sets out to reach, teach, and minister to their very basic needs. Right? He's meeting basic needs. But guys, let me tell you, he doesn't stop at meeting basic needs. He's teaching them that the kingdom of God is at hand and that they must repent. Oh, listen, it was the Jewish historian uh, Josephus. He actually estimated Josephus was born four years after Jesus was crucified. And Josephus actually says that of the cities and villages and towns and places that Jesus would have traveled during his earthly ministry, he would have visited, are you ready for this? Over 240 separate towns and villages during his time. Just, just teaching and preaching and healing people. In fact, Matthew's gospel alone tells us that Jesus went everywhere. It tells us he ministered in cities and villages, in the countryside, in synagogues. It tells us he was in the mountains. He was down by the seashore. He ministered from boats. He was near graveyards. He actually went down by the graveyard and taught. He was in homes. He was everywhere, everywhere and his message then is his message now, and I said it just a few moments ago when Jesus said, for the kingdom of God, he said, repent. 
for the kingdom of God is at hand. And this is still his message. In fact, you remember when Jesus went to visit, you know, Zacchaeus? Some of you smile. Like, oh, yeah, I remember that little story. He went to see eh. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the sake of one to see. And as he said, yeah. Get back on track. <laughs> what did he tell Zacchaeus? He told Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, he said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. His message then is his message now. May we never be confused about the message. Oh, can we see what Jesus sees? Look back in our text, look at verse 36. It says, and when he, Jesus, saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. Notice these words, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. To be honest, folks, when Jesus uttered these descriptions, his disciples would, they would have shocked his disciples, put it that way. When he shares these words that they were fainted and scattered abroad as sheep with no shepherd, that would have shocked his disciples at that moment because, see, what you and I don't understand is we're looking at the English words and we see the word fainted and scattered and we're like, eh, what's the big deal? Oh, I feel faint. Oh, we're scattered about, right? We think about our kids going separate different ways, playing in different areas. That's not what Jesus was saying. And so to understand the compassion that Jesus really had, we have to see what he sees. Look in the text again. It says that Jesus saw the people had fainted. In other words, what he was saying is that they were weighed down. They were ready to collapse. Life, religion, and sin had taken its toll. And the picture is Matthew's gospel is actually using a Greek word that would be used elsewhere to describe a pathetic animal, or in this case, sheep, if you please, to describe a pathetic animal who had been brutalized who had been attacked, whose fleece had been torn, lacerated. Essentially, the animal, the picture would be of an animal that is lame or left for dead, no strength or ability to get up on their own. And Jesus says, he looks out on the multitudes and he sees that the people are fainted. This is the picture that he has in mind. By the way, this is exactly what happened in Jesus' day when a wolf or a lion would come into the flock and they would destroy the flock. That's why it tells us to be careful of wolves in sheep's clothing. Oh, we must be diligent. We must be on our knees seeking the Lord, asking the Lord of the harvest, Lord, what is it that you wanted me to do? What do you want me to do this year? Because I see how you see. I see that you see the people are fainted. But the Bible also says that Jesus was not only moved with compassion because they fainted, it says that he saw that the people were scattered. They were scattered abroad. Notice what this word means. It means that they were abandoned. They were neglected. Again, the imagery or the picture here is graphic in nature. And it speaks of the spiritual condition of people who were falling down after being mortally wounded. The idea of struggling and wandering. Those who had been beaten and dejected having lost their way. So here's the thing, folks. When Jesus looks out on the multitude, he sees his children in his land that have been utterly decimated. Widespread carnage. We read it and we gloss over it. We go, yep, I heard this, these verses before. Harvest is plenteous, the laborers are few. Big deal, big deal, big deal. We'll never, 
We'll never get a picture. We'll never get that deep compassion in our hearts until we see what Jesus sees. Oh, yes, he saw the multitude had no shepherd. They weren't being cared for. The reality is Jesus saw that his people were had been harassed. They had been damaged and demoralized at the hands of the enemy. And I told you life, religion, and sin had taken its toll. Remember, we just finished the book of Galatians that talked about Judaizers going around preaching false gospels and, not, and whatnot. And so certainly there was some of that running around, but there was, there was uh, demonic worship. There was all kind of things that were causing his people to be sick. Because here's what I know. That enemy of your soul, that enemy of my soul who still seeks whom he may devour, still walks about, he was walking about then as well. Oh, listen, think about the cities and villages where they were. This was uh, the land of Galilee and Judea, certainly his people in his own land. And I think about the multitudes. We're going to have missionaries coming from Guatemala and Uruguay and Philippines. Think about the multitudes right there. But like I said, we don't even have to think about the missionaries. What about the multitudes right outside our doors? What about the multitude right next door to us where we live? What about our co-workers? What about the people we've come into contact with in the grocery store? Have you ever run into somebody in the grocery store or Walmart that you haven't seen in about 20 years? And then when you look at them, then when you look at them, you're like, man, they've had a hard life. And if you're not careful, you walk away from that encounter going, well, look at me. I look pretty good. The only reason you look halfway decent is because you have Jesus residing inside of your heart. You don't look good because you're like, well, I'm, I'm phys physically attractive. That's a gift from God. And I don't care. I always joke I have a face for radio, but that's okay. I do the best with it I can. It's fine and dandy. It's like a hard candy Christmas. <laughs> oh, listen. What about the multitudes right here in northern Virginia? My friends, in order to spread the hope of Jesus Christ, we're going to have to see what Jesus sees. But here's the kicker. It's like, oh, I see it. I see widespread carnage. What's the big deal? Well, that's not where it stops. Because if we're going to make a difference... If we're going to truly make a difference, we not only need to see what Jesus sees, we need to feel what he felt and what he continues to feel today. Listen, he had been teaching and preaching and healing sicknesses and diseases everywhere he had been. And the spiritual carnage, as I said, is everywhere. And their lives were in shambles, in shambles, because they had been eviscerated by the devil. Sound familiar? Today, in 2019, lives of countless, by the way, even those who claim to be Christians, lives are in shambles because we've given way to a murderer. We've given way to a liar, the devil. And so we just, we, we bought it. We're like hook, line, and sinker. The Bible says every man's drawn away and enticed of his own lust, right? And so it's like, oh, uh, you know, I've got this. I was talking with somebody uh, Yesterday? Was it yesterday or day before? And I was down here uh, at Effie's, and, and they were telling me about the kids. They got, say, Pastor, we're going to see you here in November. I said, November, praise the Lord. You know, I'm always trying to be positive. But you want to know why? Because double header every Sunday. 
I got a doubleheader baseball game. I have no time for Jesus because I got doubleheader baseball game. I got double whatever this game. I got double dance lessons. I got double this. I got double this. I'm working extra time. I don't have time. The reality is my pastor years ago used to say it, so I'll just say it like he said it. We make time for what we want to make time for. We make time for what we want to make time for. It's amazing to me. We don't have time to serve Jesus. And when somebody asks us to serve Jesus, you know what our answer these days is? No, I don't feel like doing that. What? I don't feel like serving. It's, it's the three ugly cousins of Christianity. Convenience, apathy, and complacency that locks us and doesn't allow us to feel what Jesus felt. Verse 36 says that when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. That word means to be moved inwardly. It means to yearn with tender mercy, affection, and pity, and empathy. And so when Jesus looked at his children as being brutalized by sin and sickness, he didn't just feel sorry for them. He didn't just have a little bit of sympathy. He was distressed. In other words, the phrasing there is that he was agonizing over these people. I don't know about you, but that encourages me. If he agonized over them, how must he feel about us? Oh, our great God cares for us. Amen, he cares for us. In fact, Psalm 103 and verse number 13, the Bible says, Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. Psalm 103, just a few verses later, in verse number 17, the Bible says, The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him. And a lot of us love Lamentations 3.22. Because 3.22 talks about the fact that it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. But I put in my notes, what about us? How much compassion do we really have? When we look at these faces in the banners, when we sing songs to the Lord, when, when we sing about what a friend we have in Jesus, and we think about the, the author and the finisher of our faith, when we think about his goodness and his love and his mercy in our lives, how do we feel? How does that, uh, does that compassion come out of us? Do we agonize over the spiritual condition of others? Or are we just concerned with our own needs? Oh, listen, I'm glad that I heard the news that Jesus saves. But I want to make sure somebody else hears the news too. Listen, without it, without it, we are men and women most miserable. It was David Livingston, that missionary from Africa from years gone by, he said these words. He said, sympathy is no substitute for action. Think about that in our own lives. Even if you have a loved one that is sick, and you walk by and say, oh, I'm sorry you're feeling sick. And then you just keep walking by, right? Chuck, you're just going to have to fend for yourself. I'm sorry, brother. Is that the measure of our compassion? When we see people who are dying without Jesus Christ, truthfully, it's one thing to feel sympathy for someone, but it's another thing to feel so deeply like Jesus felt that we would be moved into action. Oh, we need to see what Jesus sees. We need to feel what he feels. But we also must learn to know what he knows. Now, I'm not... I'm not advocating that you think you can know as much as Jesus knows, but I can tell you this, you can have an understanding of what he knew. He knew that the only solution to their problem was him. 
And so if we know that, if we have compassion, see, his compassion was based on what he knew. And he knew that without him, they would continue to be fainted and scattered as sheep without a shepherd. He knew that sin was running rampant. He knew sickness and disease were the norms of the day. He knew that there were all types of demonic afflictions taking place. But he also knew, praise the Lord, that there was a harvest to be reaped. And he said, hey, the harvest is plenteous. There's nothing wrong with the harvest. It's ready. But I'm asking you to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers into the field to harvest souls. It seems like everywhere I go, I run into, and I, you, maybe you've heard me say this before, it seems like I run into these snack shop theologians. I love snack shop theologians because they always, in their mind, they're smarter than you. Have you ever run into somebody who thinks he or she is always the smartest person, spiritually speaking? It's, it's a great encouragement. But sometimes those who actually know theologically that Jesus is, only, is the only solution for the world today... A snack shop theologian, you know what they do? They spend more time talking about theology than actually exercising what they know is right to do. You see what I'm saying? So it's, it's like uh, the difference between knowing and doing. It's like, I'm so smart spiritually. You can't teach me anything. Well, perfect. I'm not trying to teach you. I'm trying to show you God's word and let God teach you, right? But a snack shop theologian will say, man, I know that Jesus is the hope for the world. And so they sit around tables and they talk about Jesus being the hope of the world, but they never tell anybody Jesus is the hope of the world. See, sympathy, as David Livingston said, sympathy is never a substitute for action. There's a danger in knowing that Jesus is the hope, but never doing anything with the knowledge. Why? Because 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says that now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Nobody has a blank check on tomorrow. That's what Proverbs 27.1 says. Boast not thyself for tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. James 4.14 talks about the fact that our life is a vapor. It appears for a little while and then it vanishes away. And so none of us have a blank check. And that goes for those that still need the Lord as well. Oh yes, the Lord is long-suffering. But we still have a job to do. Oh church, we must rise up and march into action once again. I was thinking earlier this week, when Nicodemus, you remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, the lawyer? He comes to Jesus at night and Jesus is talking to him. Nicodemus comes and the very first thing Jesus says to Nicodemus, he doesn't even answer his question, right? The very first thing Jesus says to him, he says, Verily, verily, in John 3, 3, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Oh, yes, it's been said, knowledge is knowing. But wisdom is doing. May God help us, as Colossians 4, 5 says, to walk in wisdom towards them that are without. I believe that the Lord of the harvest is calling us to translate what we know into action every day of our life. Throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus is acting on behalf of others, but he's also been declaring his authority. Remember in Matthew chapter 3, he's baptized and then right after he gets baptized, the father says, hey, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Then in Matthew chapter 4, he goes out into uh, the, the desert and he's tempted by who? Who tempts Jesus in Matthew chapter 4? Yeah, the devil, Satan. And so at the heart of this whole concept of being tempted is the authority. Who's in charge? And every time 
Satan tempts the Lord. Jesus Christ reminds the devil, I'm in charge. You're not in charge. You can tempt me all you want. By the way, that's a great lesson for us. When the devil tempts you, you could say, hey, you're not in charge. Remind the devil, you don't have authority. Jesus has authority. And so he's proclaiming his authority. When you get to Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he's teaching us how to live in the kingdom. The reality is it's all about his authority. And at the end of his message, let me read to you what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29. It says, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astounded at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. His authority was at question all the way through Matthew's gospel. Get to Matthew chapter 8. It's amazing. You start off in Matthew chapter 8. The leper comes and worships Jesus, and he makes a statement. He says about cleansing him, and Jesus says, yeah, I'll, I'll cleanse you. And then right after the leper, here comes the centurion. The centurion says, hey, I'm under authority. I know what it means to be under authority. I don't need you to come to my house. You just speak the word, and I know that my servant will be healed. That's in Matthew chapter 8, too. And, and, and so it's, it begins there in verse 5 and following. And it's amazing to me that this centurion, this, this Gentile, actually knew about Jesus' authority. He had faith that Jesus could heal his servant. In Matthew Chapter 8, verse 14, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then you go on, he calms the winds and the waves of the sea in 23 through 27. In 28 and following, Jesus is healing the two men who are uh, possessed with devils. And then in Matthew chapter 9, he continues to heal. Matthew chapter 9, by the way, is where he calls Matthew into service. So he heals, he calls, and he teaches people. And the point is that every example of Jesus in Matthew's gospel, he is serving other people, but he is also revealing his authority. By the way, authority that he still wields today. He has authority over the harvest. We just must do our job. Oh, he's been preparing a spiritual harvest all around the world, day after day after day. And they're ready to be reached. In verse number 37 of our text, the Bible says, Then he said unto his disciples, The harvest is truly plenteous. But the laborers are few. The laborers are few all around the world. But can I tell you, much to our shame, the laborers are few right here in Warrington, Virginia. Really. I know that's a hard little thing to hear. And I've sat where you've sat. And I've heard it before. But the reality is, I look out more and more. And the more I look out, I'm, can I be real transparent? I'm going to be transparent anyway. The more I look out, the more discouraged I become. I'll be real honest with you, church. The more I look out at this world, the more I look out at Northern Virginia, it's real discouraging. If we ever, get, if we ever want to get the hope in every nation, it must start here. And it's only going to start here when we see what Jesus sees, when we feel what Jesus feels. And when we know what he knows, he, know, we, he knew he's the only hope for the world. The question is, do we know that? Are we committed? Do we want to see people saved or do we want to see people die and go to a devil's hell? That's a hard message, but that's the reality of life. Without Jesus, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. We got to quit living like we're, 
We're living on borrowed time, folks. I remember the day not so long ago that my mother passed away. When I was 10 years of age, I thought she'd live forever. And like that, she was gone. We're living on borrowed time. So we must know, see what he sees, feel what he feels, know what he knows. But in the end, if we ever get hope to get the gospel into every nation, look what he says in verse 38. we got to do what Jesus says do. Look at it. In verse 38, he says, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Jesus is saying, folks, I have prepared the harvest. It's not man's business. It's my business. And so now here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray that God would call, that he would equip, and that he would thrust or send out more laborers to go and to reap the harvest. But here's where the rubber meets the road, or the rub, if you please, is if you say, hey, I like that. All he's asking me to do is pray that God would send forth laborers into the harvest. I can do that, Pastor. Sign me up. Just remember when you pray that the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers into his harvest, you're already one of the laborers. You're a recipient of his grace. You're to be a minister of reconciliation. Ha! So here's the catch 22, if you please. When you pray that God would send forth laborers in the field, he might just be calling you to go to the field. The field of next door, the field of your workplace, the field of the marketplace. He may be calling you to go to Nicaragua. He may be calling you to go to Guatemala and to Uruguay and to Philippines. I have no clue. He may call you to plant a church. Oh man, I'm praying that God would raise up somebody from Battlefield that we'd be able to send out and plant a church. Do you know that this church has never planted another church? That would be an amazing thing, that we would plant another church. Oh man, if we really believe that he's the hope of the world, let's do it, let's do it. Because in Mark's gospel, Jesus was pretty clear when he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I close with this. It was Dr. David Sills in an essay entitled Opportunities and Challenges Concerning Global Missions, here's what he said. He said, the 21st century is a time of unprecedented challenge and opportunity for global missions. He said, the terrorism of 9-11 18 years ago was the first of many cataclysmic global changes that have reshaped our world today. Surging terrorism, the growth of Islam, and other entities have combined to mount significant challenges facing Christianity and its efforts to evangelize the world. He went on to say that on average, ready for this, three countries per year close their doors to traditional missions work. Folks, it's not enough just to pray and to give, to send missionaries around the world. Certainly we ought to be doing that. But we must never lose sight of our own responsibility to go and to serve ourselves. The Bible says in Psalm 126, 5 and 6, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth in weeping, bearing precious seeds, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. It's just like Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 20 and verse number 21. He said, As my Father has sent me, even so I send you. Oh, it's time to stop thinking about missions. It's time to stop talking about missions. It's time, church, that we get real busy, real serious about missions. We cannot rest on the laurels of the past 38 years. The opportunity is now before us. 
So we have to ask ourselves, when we look on the multitudes, do we see what Jesus sees? Do we feel what he feels? Do, do we know what he knows, that he's the only hope of the world? And are we willing to do what he says do? I pray that you are. I pray that you are. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that you will bless now our short invitation. God, I pray that you will encourage our hearts to be on our knees praying and seeking your face. God, there's an opportunity that's before us. God, it is uh, your work that we're involved with. And so help us to be faithful. Even when we feel discouraged, help us to continue to walk by faith and not by sight. Help us to hold on to you. We know that you're with us. But God, I also know that you are for us. God, help us to bring you honor and glory. God, I pray that corporately you would forgive us of our sinfulness. and That individually each of us would desire that prayer in our heart that we would repent. We know your word says that you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Lord, I pray that we'll do that. God, I pray that you will remind us that you are able to make a way when there doesn't seem to be a way. God, I pray that you'll meet with us this upcoming week in a very special way. God, I pray that your church would once again rise up and move into action that we would be here to encourage our missionaries, that we would be involved in your work, that we desire to serve you here and abroad, that there would be people who would want to be a part of our missions trips as we go around the world, that it wouldn't be the same people always wanting to go and to serve, but God, that we would have other people that would desire to serve. We'd have other people that might be willing to pray about going and having a part in your work, no matter what it costs. Help us to quit counting the cost. God, help us to look at the fields, the multitudes, the way that you did. To see the utter carnage. To see the need and how great that need is that people need the Lord. God, help us to do what we can do while we have time. To reach our family members. To reach our friends. To reach our co-workers and neighbors. God, we do love you. I am thankful for your love for me, Lord. Even in the midst of my discouragement, I am able to strengthen myself in you. And so, God, I just pray that you would have your will in your way. God, if there's someone here that doesn't know Jesus, God, help them to realize that it's the best choice they could ever make to call out upon the name of the Lord for the forgiveness of sin. And God, I pray that they would be bold enough to come forward and let somebody show them from your word how they could know that they could have forgiveness and eternal life. God, help us to be serious about your business, and we give you the praise in Jesus' name. For his sake, amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like more information about our ministry, check out our website at battlefieldbaptist.org or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We'll see you next time.